You guys have heard me say a couple of times that, that church is the safest place on earth. That's actually a quote from Larry Crabb. And somebody sent me an email recently that uh, gave me empirical evidence for that. This is really cool. They said, uh, it says in this email, avoid riding in automobiles because they are responsible for 20% of all fatal accidents. Do not stay home because 17% of all accidents occur in the home. Avoid walking on streets or sidewalks because 14% of accidents occur to pedestrians. Avoid traveling by air, rail, or water because 16% of accidents occur with these forms of transportation. You will be pleased to learn that only 0.001% of all deaths occur in worship services in church. <laughs> and these usually are related to previous physical disorders. Therefore, the logic tells us that the safest place for you to be in any given moment in time is at church. It goes on to say, Bible study is safe too. The percentage of deaths during Bible study is even less. <laughs> so it wraps up by saying, for safety's sake, attend church and read your Bible. It could save your life. That's true. I know the logic there is skewed, but it is kind of a fun way of saying that, that, that you're in a safe place at church. You really are. And Cactus, you're in a safe place at church. We, we believe here at Scottsdale Bible Church that when we gather as the community of faith and we love each other in the name of Jesus and we speak truth from his word and we rally around God's truth in a grace-filled way, that God, as the Old Testament says, inhabits the praises of his people. He does. He, he actually is pleased when we gather as a church like this. And we know we're not perfect. We're going to talk about that today. But, but when we come with submitted hearts before him, God is pleased with that. And, th and that's what church is about. As we all know, church is not about buildings. It's not about programs. It's not about policies or things like that. It's not even a bunch of, about a bunch of rules. Our church and our Christian faith is about the people of God coming together and being the church in unconditional love and unwavering faith toward each other and toward God. And, and so that's what we're doing here today. And, and today is an open topic Sunday, which means I get to preach on whatever I want to. We're in between series. And I actually love Sundays like this because I get to talk about something that's been near and dear to my heart. And there's a, a topic I've wanted to talk about to you all for a while that has been a huge part of my journey for the last 31 years since I've been a Christian. I mean, God has just walloped me over the head with a topic I want to talk to you about today. It's the topic of brokenness. So why don't you bow with me and let's pray, and then we're going to dive into the Word. Father, thank you that uh, you've given us church. It's, it's exciting, Lord, today to celebrate uh, our new Cactus Campus here or there as we are one body uh, in Jesus Christ. And so, God, I pray that as we all turn to your Word now, your truth, that for thousands of years Christians have believed is your revelation to us, inspired and inerrant in all that it says, I pray, God, that you might catch some of us off guard. As Lewis prayed so often, would you surprise us with joy, even in this discussion of brokenness? Truly, Lord, help us to see today how brokenness can help us find you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so that's really the, the starting point that we have in our discussion on brokenness. And that's that I have a love-hate relationship with this reality. And that is that it is in the most difficult times of my life and I would suggest that it's in the most difficult times in your life that you look back and you see how much you grew during those times and even how much you found God in the midst of those difficult times. 
Uh, you know, I, you'd think that you would find God in mountaintop experiences. You'd think you'd find God at a Promise Keepers conference or at a uh, Just Give Me Jesus conference for the women or what have you, or at a great day at church. But the reality is, is that most of us, when we use hindsight to analyze our experience with God, will admit that we find God during the more difficult times in our life. And what I want you to wrestle with this morning is why is that so? What's going on in this world and with God that we find him in times of difficulty? When I was back in Cleveland years ago, I first became a Christian back there, there was a famous baseball player that went to my church there in Cleveland. His name was Andre Thornton. And Andre Thornton played for the Cleveland Indians back in the late 70s. And he, he had an experience back in the 70s that obviously would change his world. He was driving down the freeway in Cleveland. He hit a patch of ice in his van. It rolled over, and his wife and one of his children were killed in that car accident made the news all over Cleveland because a famous baseball player had such a, a tragic accident. And obviously that totally rocked his world, changed his world. He went through an intense time of grieving and disillusionment. Eventually he'd get remarried and have some more children. And he wrote a book that became, I wouldn't say a bestseller, but it did in Cleveland. The book was called Triumph Born of Tragedy. And he talked about how God met him in the midst of that very, very dark time, that very difficult time, that horrific tragedy, and yet worked things in his life and in his soul and in his circumstances that, that, that would bring really a tone of triumph. And, and if truth can be told, we tell stories like that all the time of how out of our woundedness, God does things to lead us to places of brokenness, and in the midst of that, we find him. I have a love-hate relationship with this truth that we're talking about here today, but I'm telling you folks, in my experience with God for 30 years, that has been my experience as well, that I tend to find God more in the valleys than I do on the mountaintops, and yet we tend to gravitate toward the mountaintops. So here's your main point today. This is the distinction we need to wrestle with if we're ever going to really get any traction with this experience I think that many of us can resonate with. And your main point is this. Everybody's wounded. We'll flesh that out here in a second. But not everybody is broken. And yet I submit to you that it's in brokenness that we discover growth and that we find God. Everybody is wounded, but not everybody is broken. Now, what I want to do in our time remaining this morning is I want to take each of those phrases, woundedness and brokenness, each of those ideas, separate them, explain them so that we're all on the same page as to what we mean by that, and then put them together and see how this works. So first, consider the phrase that everyone, and I mean everyone, is wounded in this world. It's something we have to recognize. You know, I don't know why this is, maybe it's for another sermon or even a counseling session, but when I was growing up, I entered adulthood with this naive belief that there were people out there that were more together than I felt, than I felt, that they, they had their act together more than I did, that they had kind of arrived to a certain place in life where they had kind of overcome most of their wounds and could teach me now as a young adult how not to feel so messed up. I really, in my young adult years, was looking for that completely together person, that mentor, that, that father figure that could show me what living a non-wounded, complete and whole life was about. 
And I had just become a Christian, so I baptized that belief and said, you know, God obviously wants us all to live in the realm of non-woundedness and live more in the realm of wholeness and even perfection. And so everybody I would meet, I would think, is this the person that just might be help me get to that place of more wholeness and not being wounded anymore? I really was searching for that person. And so when I'd meet a pastor or a Christian leader or a seminary professor, even when I first met my wife, Kim, I remember thinking to myself, she's really together. Like, she's like Mother Teresa but wants to get married. I mean, this woman is really amazing. And part of my draw to Kim was this whole idea of maybe she could help me because I feel so messed up in my life. And I kept looking for that person. And yet everybody I met seemed to let me down. Everybody I met that I thought somehow it had gotten over their woundedness and escaped their woundedness, as I got close to them, I realized I was wrong. John Orper wrote a book years ago called Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. And I think that that says it all, doesn't it? That we look at people on the outside, and Scottsdale and North Phoenix are so good at this because we look so good on the outside, but scratch the surface, get to know them, and you realize that there's a lot of woundedness underneath the surface. I probably hit by the age of 30, and I realized that I need to stop that holy hunt. I need to stop putting that pressure on those around me to somehow demonstrate to me they're not wounded. Why? Because everybody is wounded. Everybody, everybody I got close to would reveal some type of wound. I remember in Detroit, my first pastor, there was this guy that came to our church that just had everything. He just looked so good on the outside. He had a very successful job. He had his law degree. He had a beautiful wife, a couple of beautiful kids. He bought a big house in Gross Point, and he had just become a Christian. And he was smart and charismatic and winsome in his demeanor. And my senior pastor asked me to disciple this new Christian. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be a train wreck. What do I have to offer this guy? I mean, I got a master's of divinity, but big whip, I barely got through that. I thought, you know, this is like, what am I going to say to him? But because I was an obedient pastor back then, a lot more obedient than now, I, I said, well, I'll do it. And so I started meeting with this individual, and I'm telling you, within about two sessions, I realized that this guy struggled with two things that I could relate to. They were pride and insecurity. And I realized that this pride and insecurity in his life was slowly destroying things from the inside out. This guy that looked so good on the outside was what I would eventually label an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. Do you know the type? I mean, in one sense, he was so high on himself and all of his accomplishments, but then he had these massive insecurities from his childhood, and they were colliding within, and it was starting to affect his marriage and his parenting. It kept him from being a partner at the law firm that he was at. And I realized, once again, look good on the outside, but very, very wounded on the inside. And God used me, one wounded person to another, to help this young man in his life. This is who I am. This is who you are. We're all wounded, all of us. And and if you're still unconvinced, just consider very quickly, because this is not the main point of our biblical look, but just consider very quickly four areas that the Bible says you and I are all wounded just by living in this fallen world of ours. First, consider the area, the whole area of the fall, what the Bible calls the fall. Genesis 3, when sin entered into this world, and now we say that, or the Bible teaches that every single baby that's born, 
every single baby that is conceived in the womb is now conceived in a state of fallenness or sinfulness and has strikes against him or her right from the get-go, woundedness. Look at Romans 5.12. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, meaning Adam, and death through sin, meaning Adam's sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Isn't that interesting? It's basically saying that Adam and Eve were our representatives. They did what we would have done in their stead. And when they sinned, that started the ball rolling. And now, even in our genetic code, sinfulness, woundedness is built in. This is why people are born with struggles. Have you ever wondered that? Why are some people born more prone to being melancholy or depressed? Why are some people more prone to not be able to handle alcohol in any stretch of the imagination? We actually have scientific studies that show that those things are actually a part of our fallen DNA structure, our genetic code, right from birth. And it doesn't excuse us in those things. Don't hear me saying that. We just need to recognize that we are born, we're conceived in a wounded state, and you can't escape it. You'll see why this is so important in a minute. If you're not convinced there, think of a secondary the Bible says that we're all wounded. Consider our own choices. The fact that we make choices over the years, each of us, and in our wrong choices, that creates woundedness. So choose the wrong job, you're not going to be happy. Choose the wrong relationship, you might be in for years of difficulty. Make an unwise financial decision, it might take you years to get out of that. And many times, we all know this, our woundedness comes from our choices. And this is thoroughly biblical. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8 say, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And you and I both know, we don't need to belabor this point, that there are plenty of people in this world, all of us have experienced this idea of our own choices creating woundedness. But then someone will say at this point, they'll say, but yeah, Jamie, you know, my woundedness didn't come from me, it came from other people. I, I've been messed with in my life, and, and that's created woundedness. Well, you're right, that's the third area the Bible talks about. The pain of this world and the pain of others is also a source of woundedness for us. Jesus couldn't have been more clear. In John 16, he said, in the world, or as NIV says, in this world, you will have tribulation." You know what's fascinating about that passage? It's not saying you might have tribulation. It's not saying you used to have tribulation, but now that you're a Christian and you've gotten your act together, you won't. No, it's saying you will have tribulation. In the original Greek, it's the present indicative tense, which simply means it's a present tense reality with a continuous future action. <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying there that in this world, we're going to have trouble. So in this world, we have other people who hurt us, who abuse us, who manipulate us. We have societal pain like a bad economy or racism. And those are all sources of woundedness for us. And then if you're still doubting, if you can't admit your own choices, if you can't admit what's happened to you since a baby, if you can't admit other people, consider family of origin as a source of woundedness. Uh, the Bible affirms that the families that we grow up in, as good and wonderful as they are, are also sources of pain for us. You ready to own that today? Uh, Exodus 34, 7, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
Now, now don't hear me wrong here. This is not a parental blame game here. I'm just simply saying that God made families to be the, the, the seedbeds of love and joy, safety, and security for children. Family is so powerful. It's so good. We embrace that here at Scottsdale Bible, our Cactus Campus. We, we have two buildings committed on that campus out of only three that are committed to families and kids and teens. We believe that here. But if families can be such a safe place that when, however, the fall affects a family, then certainly that's going to affect the children, right? That, that, that's why when families fall into dysfunction and wrong behavior patterns, it's going to affect the kids. Kim and I came out of, out of families that were very loving, tight-knit, Midwestern, all that, but they weren't perfect. And so early on in our marriage, we, we dealt with some of those issues in our marriage because we dragged those things into our marriage and they're creating problems with our relationship. So we unpacked those and dealt with those. And, and, and we remember laughing at about the 10-year mark as we started to have our own children as they started to grow that, you know, as much as we did not want to hand off a broken baton to our kids, that invariably we were going to that we're not perfect, that there's dysfunctions even in our own current family, and that that was going to affect our kids someday. So, so we joked all those years, and now it's not funny at all, but we used to joke all those years that when our kids turned 20 and 22, we'd just hand them a check for therapy. That was our joke. <laughs> the only problem is now they're that age, and they want the check. And so, but, but, but that's the reality of it all, isn't it? I, I mean, try as hard as you can to not hand off family dysfunction. And I'm not saying you can't break the chain, you can, but, but some woundedness is gonna leak on. It's just it's part of living in a fallen world. And, and so folks, think about this, add it all up. You got the fall, your own choices, the pain of this world, family of origin, everybody's wounded. It's a universal reality of life. Nobody escapes woundedness in this world. Now, with that understanding, what do I mean, however, when I go on to say that not everybody, however, is broken. This is a huge distinction. Everybody's wounded, but not everybody's broken. Now, in order to best understand this, I want to take us to one final scripture today that we're going to spend the next 15 minutes in. We need to really understand this scripture because it's a profound teaching of Jesus Christ. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Uh, it's called the Beatitudes, which is contained in Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. So picture Jesus in the north end of the Sea of Galilee. We mentioned Capernaum earlier. He's, a, he's in Capernaum there. And he's on the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and he's teaching large crowds about the kingdom of God. And early, early on in his sermon, he says this. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to notice with me three things that build one upon the other contained in this short saying that lead us to a right understanding of brokenness as it relates to woundedness. First, notice that Jesus begins by saying blessed. I think we all know this, that word blessed literally means to be made happy. Not in some giddy, superficial sense, but to be made happy and joyful, content and purposeful in life. So Jesus begins this teaching by basically saying that what I'm about to say to you, perk up to because it's going to lead to a blessing. It's going to make you happy in your life. And what does he say? Notice the second thing, because this had to turn their heads. He says, blessed, long pause, are the poor 
in spirit. You got to believe that was a bit anticlimactic for them at that point. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The word poor means to be in need, to have want, to not have something. So today we're taking up a food offering for St. Mary's Food Bank. Why? Because there are people that are poor when it comes to food. They don't have food. They have a need there. We all know what the word poor means. But Jesus isn't using poor in light of anything material there. And we know that because he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that word spirit means an internal condition or state of an individual. So don't miss this. What Jesus is saying is that blessed are those who are poor on something on the inside of them. Something that isn't evident just from looking to their outside. It's something on the inside of them. So what Jesus is starting to say here, and they were getting it, the crowd did, is he's saying that there's something, a blessing about those who are sensible of their own internal condition. And that their internal condition is wanting. So Jesus is referring here to an individual who is aware of his or her own spiritual poverty, who is aware of his or her own fallenness, who is aware, to use our terms today, of his or her own woundedness. And to be sure, I've done in-depth commentary or Bible expert study on this passage over the years, and they all agree, even the old-time commentators, that this is what this is saying. One old-time commentator says this about this passage. This is a person who is broken, who feels that the dust is his or her right place. Another commentator says, I hold them to be poor in spirit who are broken in will. So you should start to see that, that this idea of brokenness is more about being aware of, in touch with, not in denial of your woundedness. John Gill, one of the great spiritual writers and commentators of of old, says it this way in his commentary on Matthew 5.3. He says, there are some who are sensible of it, their woundedness. They see their poverty and want. They freely acknowledge it. They bewail it. They mourn over it. They are humbled in light of it. And then he says, and they are broken under a sense of it. They have not denial of it. People, listen, as we've already established, Everyone is wounded. But maybe what you're starting to see now is that not everybody is broken. Not everybody is poor in spirit, aware of their own destitute condition, and then allowing it, as we'll see, to drive them to God. And so with this understanding, with this distinction between brokenness and woundedness, notice the third thing Jesus says, and this was like the knockout punch for his original audience. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's almost like Jesus is reading their minds and our minds at this point. Because in this point in the logic here, he's saying, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. And then the natural question is, how in the world does that have a blessing to it? How in the world are you blessed when you realize how miserable you are? And Jesus says, because right now you are knocking on the door of the kingdom of heaven which in this context means a relationship with God. Uh, folks, the, the, that phrase there, kingdom of heaven here, please realize, is not referring just to heaven itself. That would be a really shallow understanding of this passage. In all the context where Jesus used the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, get this, he meant it in the sense of the literal reign of God, relationship with God, in the heart of an individual now that will lead them all the way to heaven. That's what Jesus meant by the kingdom of heaven. 
So the kingdom of heaven is used as a phrase to denote current and present lordship and leadership of God in Christ, living and reigning in the believer now, eventually leading them to heaven. And so when you put this all together, I hope you're starting to see that it's through brokenness that Jesus says you are right on the precipice of drawing close to God. It's through getting in touch with your woundedness and by stop denying it or running from it or trying to fix it that you're going to find God and the help that you need from him. That's what Jesus is teaching here. And that's been my experience for 31 years as a follower of Jesus. You know, I've thought about this a lot, obviously, over the years because I think this is so core to our experience of God as followers of Jesus. How, how exactly does this work? Uh, guys, give me like four clicks here to put that little progression up there on the screen. And, and Cactus Campus, you can see this too. I, I think this is how it works. I think this is what Jesus is saying here is that when you and I get to a place of brokenness where we no longer deny our woundedness, Tell me if this isn't true. What immediately happens is that now we are aware of our limitations, right? Because now we're no longer in denial. We're no longer thinking that we're superhuman. We know that we can't fix this on our own, and we know that we can't run on our own. And, and so we have brokenness that leads to a sense of our limitations, that leads us to a sense that we can't accomplish this on our own. And that's what I meant earlier when I said, now you're knocking on heaven's door because you're ready to understand Jesus and his lordship in your life. Because now you realize how much you need him. And that's what brokenness does in our lives. It places us in a humble, receptive place, aware of our poverty and need, ready to receive the Son of God into our life and to help the lordship that he wants to provide. Not everyone is broken or everybody would be walking close with God. But everybody's wounded, and it's those who are in touch with their woundedness and cry out to Jesus Christ for help that find him. And I just can't tell you how many times I've seen this happen. It's the joy I have as a pastor. In, in my last church, there was a guy who had been gripped by alcoholism for 10 years, 10 years. Went through one marriage, second marriage was getting threatened. As his second marriage was getting threatened, he loved his wife so deeply, he also wanted to find God in his life that he got to a broken place in church one day, and he received Jesus into his life, and he emails me now uh, every year on the anniversary of his sobriety. But it was only through brokenness that he was ready to find Jesus and the help that he needed. I had a couple in my last church that their marriage was such a mess that even the most faithful among us were wondering how this thing could ever be healed. It was just, it was really bad. There was lots of things involved, adultery and uh, anger and manipulation and, and even emotional and physical abuse. And you, you almost just say, you know what, let's just end this thing and give it a decent burial and both of you can start over. Which is not like a really good thing for a pastor to ever say, amen? Like you hope your pastor never gets to that point. And yet we were close. But in something only God could do, each of these individuals got to a very broken place in their lives and individually got very humble and submissive before Christ and got very, very close to him. And then it was an amazing thing to watch. In the depths of that brokenness, they met each other again and found forgiveness and healing and resurrection as God breathed new life into this marriage. This is not pie-in-the-sky stuff. This is stuff 
that we have witnessed, that we have seen. And there's a, another guy I served under for nine years. He's given me permission to share this as my senior pastor in Detroit. And, you know, I mentioned family of origin issues earlier. He had significant ones. He was so mad at his dad and so angry with his parents, some, some right things, some wrong things, and yet they just weighed him down every day. They, they just plagued him. And he was our senior pastor. And, 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 and every week I'd see him battle these family of origin issues, and yet he allowed that woundedness to lead him to a broken place of dependence upon Jesus. And it was really touching. Every Sunday he'd get up and he'd say to our congregation, I think I'm more in love with Jesus this Sunday than I was last Sunday. Isn't that awesome to have a pastor say that? How, how does a pastor get to that point? Brokenness. These guys all have real names. These are people, and I could tell you so many stories of people who in their woundedness got to a broken place and found intimacy with God in a way they never thought possible, and as a result, growth and maturation. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking like I have over the years. You're saying, well, Jamie, I'm telling you, if you're trying to sell me on brokenness, it's not working. Like, this sounds awfully bleak. I mean, you're basically suggesting that I need to hit rock bottom, go through hell, and lose everything in order to experience God. That's what I hear you saying. Not necessarily, but I want you to listen close. I think that for those of us who fight getting in touch with our woundedness because of our fear and denial, for those of us who dig our heels in, in reading our own press releases, and thinking that we're something that we're not— I think for those of us, God has no choice but to lead us into rough waters that will then wake us up and show us of our need for him. And so I call that the hard way to brokenness. Eugene Peterson calls it a severe mercy. The fact that God loves you so much that he loves you and he's going to, even though you're digging your heels in, he's going to come by and wallop you over the head with circumstances that you see coming out of nowhere, or you don't see coming out of nowhere, and, and in that, he wants to wake you up to your need for him. It's the hard way to brokenness, because you're denying your woundedness. I think there's an easier way <laughs> to brokenness, and that is that we wake up each day, and we say, God, I'm not going to read the press releases that Scottsdale or North Phoenix have put out on my life. I'm not going to believe what my neighbor sees on the outside. I'm not going to believe what my coworkers think. I'm not going to believe what is the veneer. Because I know better. I know what's on the inside. And I know that there, but for the grace of God, go I. I know that I'm a gnat's eyelash away from making a mess of my life. And so you're saying all this before your feet even hit the ground out of your mattress. And you say to yourself, I surrender to God. Right now, where I lay in bed, I submit my life fully to him. I'm aware of my woundedness, God, and I'm entering this day in a broken way. Fill me and use me as you see fit. And I'm telling you, folks, when you get to that place with God, he doesn't need to whack you over the head with a two-by-four. He has you where he wants you, usable, moldable, teachable in his hands, in a submissive place. And I would call that the easy way to brokenness, to humility. But here's the problem. Many Christians today, many of us, refuse to do that. I, I wrestle a lot with why people who fill pews every Sunday, now at our Cactus Campus, why people who fill the pews there 
are in some ways still miserable, dissatisfied, itchy, antsy, not very happy. You guys showed some happiness today, but I had to compare the Browns to Pittsburgh in order for you to get happy. (laughs) And I think a lot of it comes back to what we're willing to really do before God and with Him. And are we willing to get humble? Are we willing to be broken? I'm a pretty tough guy. I don't say that in a bragging way, but I'm fiercely independent. My wife could tell you that. I I don't feel I need a lot of people around me. I find a lot of self-satisfaction in life, which is scary, but I'm pretty independent. But one thing I realized 31 years ago is how much I need God. And that if I'm not broken before Him each and every day, then I'm a mess, more of a mess. In that, I've also realized how much I need people and how much I need a few around me that really will help me in my journey with Him. And all I know is that if I, as a pretty fiercely independent guy, get to the point in life where I say that, then you're a goner. You need Him too. Whether you're a Christian here today or not, because as a non-Christian, you definitely need Jesus, but as a Christian even, it's easy to live life in our own strength. Wake up tomorrow and feel your woundedness. Allow that to take you to a broken place. Allow that to take you to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that Jesus' teaching is so tender and so true. Lord, it had only been 10 words that he taught us here today, but 10 more potent words I could not know. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God, I pray that you might continue to do that work in our hearts and minds, and that, Lord, you might continue to draw us close to yourself, knit us together as a congregation of faith that loves you deeply and richly and loves others the same. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.